So uh, welcome, Nick. It's great to have you on the program. And uh, Nick is going to talk to us on mental health within a biblical worldview. More than one in four of us will have a significant episode of psychiatric illness at some time in our lives. And the World Health Organization now says that depression is the largest single cause of ill health across the world. As Christian health professionals, therefore, we've got a special responsibility to people with mental health problems who are often stigmatized or marginalized and to help our churches minister to them and, and perhaps even especially uh, Christian health professionals. So this seminar is gonna look at questions. Uh, how do we make sense of the secular models of mental illness from a Christian perspective? What's the role of sin in mental illness? Uh, any other questions you might like to bring along as well? Dr. Nick Land is a psychiatrist. He's a retired medical director of a large mental health organization in England. He's an Anglican lay reader, which means that uh, he is a, a theologian and a preacher, but not formally ordained. And he is a previous chair of Christian Medical Fellowship UK, which is one of ICMDA's member bodies. Nick is married to Helen, who is a general practitioner and has three sons, a grandson, and three charming daughters-in-law as well. So Nick, it, it's wonderful to have you here on ICMDA webinars and we really look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you, brother. Well, thank you very much, Peter, for the introduction and for the privilege to come and speak to you today. And um, I'm very keen for Christian health professionals um, to get an understanding of mental health and have a perspective of mental health within a biblical worldview. And um, mental health problems clearly are extremely uh, common. A study in the UK suggested half of all family doctor consultations have a significant psychological or psychiatric uh, component. But almost whatever speciality you're in, if it's in obstetrics or surgery or um, uh, uh, general medicine, 20 to 30 to 40% of the people presenting will actually be presenting um, mainly for psychological reasons as opposed to physical reasons. Although of course, those will not always be evident. And of course, during COVID, I think many more people have become uh, more aware of just the impact of stress uh, and anxiety symptoms. And as Christians, I think it's very important that we have an understanding of mental health and particularly as Christian health professionals, um, we need to show Christ's love to those who are psychiatrically ill. Um, in many societies, uh, people with mental health problems are still significantly uh, stigmatized. Um, and actually often uh, it's in physical health services where that stigma can be most uh, significant. Um, secondly, I think our biblical knowledge of humanity gives us a real insight into the causes and treatment of mental illness. We've got something additional uh, we can give. And thirdly, I think we have a responsibility uh, to help our churches in their uh, ministry to people with mental health problems. Sadly, the stigma of mental illness is just as real in churches as it is in the rest of society. And it can be really difficult for the Christian already struggling, perhaps with severe depression, to be then be uh, challenged that perhaps this depression is down to deep-rooted sin or them having a spirit of, of depression. And unfortunately, churches tend to make one of two mistakes in their attitude towards psychiatry and mental health therapies. Now, one of them is hostility and fear. Um, they often equate 
thing they do realize is is slightly dodgy within the Christian um, biblical worldview. Um, but this hostility often leads to real delay in Christians getting treatment when they've got significant mental health uh, problems. You, know, you can't imagine the church trying to stop its uh, um, members of the church going to see an endocrinologist if they've got diabetes or, or getting their legs sorted out if they fractured their leg. But, but churches will get in the way of people getting um, appropriate mental health problems, even when they're quite ill. But then there's another group of churches where it's the opposite therapy, where it's an uncritical acceptance of all psychological and psychiatric therapies. And often then Christians uh, with some psychological pain symptoms, who frankly would be better being dealt with through biblical counselling and, and Christian, uh, a very specifically Christian approach, uh, end up um, being put uh, in perhaps inappropriately uh, into mental health services. Now, we're going to try and answer two questions today. I'm going to try and help you answer two questions, which is how we can get an, a, a kind of holistic understanding of where different mental health issues can fit in within a Christian worldview. Um, but also, we'll talk a bit about uh, the role of sin and Satan uh, in mental health issues. But one of the things I want to do just before we get into the detail is just to uh, knock one preconception on the head. There's a lot of people who think that when the Bible talks about mental health problems, it always talks about demon possession and the, the Bible's got nothing specific to say about mental health. And there's just a few mental health verses here. Um, I'm not going to go into all of them, but there's an interesting one uh, with King David. This is a thousand years before Jesus was born, thousand years BC. He's caught by the Philistines and uh, to get away, he pretends to be mad. And King Achish, who's caught him, says, goodness me, I don't need another madman in my camp. Send him away. But the point is, a thousand years before Jesus, 3,000 years ago, David and Achish had a shared model of mental illness, uh, which allowed David to pretend to be ill and, and to escape. Um, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was um, talking to Festus about issues of the gospel. Festus is trying to avoid listening to this. And so he says to Paul, 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 your great learning has driven you insane. Uh, in other words, an accusation of mental health problems um, uh, to avoid listening to the gospel. But perhaps the, um, my favourite one is Rhoda. Uh, Rhoda is a little servant girl. Uh, the Apostle Peter has um, run, uh, escaped from prison, comes to the door. Um, she, she looks out, is overjoyed, forgets to open the door, goes and tells the other people that Peter's there. And they accuse her of being out of her mind, of being manic. Um, and there's a number of others. The point I'm just making is, um, you know, the models of mental illness have existed uh, for at least 3,000 years. And um, what I'm going to do is probably stick to um, depression at uh, this time. Clearly, trying to do the whole of mental health in the space of now 25 minutes is slightly unrealistic. And I'm going to use depression as my, um, as the thing I'm going to talk about, simply because it covers the whole of mental health issues uh, from very mild ones that many of us will have experienced um, through to quite severe mental health problems right through to severe um, psychosis. Um, the other thing I'm just going to mention um, is that uh, because I realize that not everyone here will have done much uh, in psychiatry, I'm going to give very, very brief overviews of some of the, the big secular models for the explanations of mental um, health problems uh, in order that uh, the seminar makes sense. And there are probably five large categories of etiological models for mental health difficulties, uh, psychological, sociological, uh, behavioral, existential, 
and biological. Now there's lots of different psychological models. I've just put one here, classical psychoanalysis, Freud, um, and the, the, the idea that depression is caused by anger at an absent or distant parent, leading to guilt, which gets internalized uh, in order to be um, uh, depression. Um, quite interesting, I think, are the sociological models for depression. There's a chap called Paykel, and he found that people who had negative life events were more predisposed to depression. And he did some really interesting research and was able to grade the different negative life events, different kinds of bereavements or injury or illness or divorce, and put them in order. And interestingly, he found that the, the most serious life event, the life event most likely to cause depression, was death of a child. Um, but interestingly, death of a child on the edge of adulthood, 18 to 25. But further research he did found something even more interesting, that actually just too many life events occurring at the same time could predispose people to anxiety and depression, even if the life events are quite positive ones. So when I'm talking to medical students, I might ask them to generate what, what, when that might happen to them, and eventually they do, which is when they graduate. You graduate as a medical student, you suddenly change your friend set, you get a new job, you often move uh, city, therefore you move church. And among Christian medical students, certainly in my year, half of them got married on the same Saturday just before starting uh, as doctors. Uh, and my advice to them always is spread those life, uh, spread those life events around. But if lots happens to you too much at the same time, even if it's not bad stuff, um, it can make you more vulnerable to anxiety and depression. Um, behavioral models of depression. This chap called Seligman did some rather unkind experiments with dogs. He, put the dog on a electric grid, turns the electricity on, dog jumps off, puts the dog on the electricity grid, ties it down, puts the electricity on, dog can't jump off because it's tied on. Then he unties the dog and the dog's learnt it's helpless. So no longer moves, even when he puts the power on and it could escape, he no longer escapes. And you can see the model here that when people have got lots of stuff happens to them, lots of pain, and they feel they've got no control over that, eventually they stop trying. Uh, to escape from pain. But perhaps the most important of them is a chap called Aaron Beck. He is the kind of father of the underlying research that led to the development of cognitive uh, behavioral therapy. And um, uh, this is basically, he devised this idea uh, and then I think demonstrated it well through research that there are some people who begin to see um, the negative in everything that they experience. So. Um, the example I would say if I could, um, if I was giving to a live seminar would be if I see two people falling asleep at the back of the seminar, what do I assume? And eventually one well, somebody will shout out that you're a very boring lecturer. And I say, yes, that's exactly what I assume. I'm a boring lecturer. And of course, as a doctor, so much of what I do is teaching. So if I'm a bad lecturer, I must be a bad uh, doctor. And, and if I'm um, a bad doctor, well, actually, that's how I get my money. And if I'm a bad doctor, I must be a bad husband and, and a bad person. So I've just looked at people falling asleep in the lecture. I never, I've built this great pyramid of negativity upon it uh, and concluded all these negative stuff. And the job of cognitive therapy is cognitive therapy is a truth-based therapy. Uh, it's, I put here swatting the knot, the gnats. That's negative automatic thoughts where people see something and they always assume the most negative. And you're helping people to see uh, what is true uh, rather than their negative um, uh, preconceptions. Next major category is existential therapies. And one of the uh, people behind this is a chap called Frankel. He was a Jewish 
concentration camp survivor. And he talked about the loss of meaning of existence because he noted in the camps that the people who survived were the people who had something in which they believed. Might have been faith, it might have been music, but whatever it is, if you, if you had a strong sense of why you were there, uh, you were more likely to survive in the camps. And um, I think interestingly, one of the reasons we have so many young people with mental health problems is that now we have a real disorientation in society. Um, it started in terms of a kind of a post-modern abandonment of, of truth, uh, where young people go perhaps from school where they've learned lots of facts and lots of interesting stuff, and they go to a university department uh, where they're told you can know nothing. And then, of course, more recently, we have these radical um, uh, issues around uh, young people having to think about their, their gender, their sexuality. There are no fixed points for them. And actually, that can be extremely disorientating. Uh, and I'm sure is one of the reasons why we're seeing a big increase in mental health problems uh, in, in youngsters. And then, of course, you've got the biological schools of mental health problems. Depression's all just about an impairment of biogenic monoamine function. And if you just keep taking the tablets, uh, you'll be fine. So I think where a psychological or psychiatric theory is based um, on careful observation, um, then we may be able to learn a lot from it. But we do need to be careful about some of the underlying uh, philosophies of the theories associated in with these different models um, uh, before we uh, take them on board um, wholeheartedly. So I want to just look here about what might be some of the spiritual reasons then uh, for mental health difficulties. And uh, I think that a biblical framework for the causes of mental illness uh, can be found in the first three chapters of Genesis. These are three of the most important chapters in the Bible because they help us understand about God, about who we are as people, and about why the world's in such a mess. And in Genesis 1, of course, we learn that God's a creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he created a world that was full of beauty and glorious diversity, flowers, trees, hills, birds, fish, animals, and it was good. And then at the end of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we read about God creating humanity. And if we look carefully, we also find that God created humanity with five different sorts of relationships that need to be right for humans to flourish. So we're going to think about those five relationships and about humanity's, how humanity's rebellion against God damaged those relationships. Well, the first relationship is, is that is essential to our well-being is the relationship with God. Genesis 1.27 says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female, he created them. So we're created in God's image, we're spiritual beings, we've got spiritual needs, to be loved by God and to love him. And of course, at the beginning, those needs were met on a face-to-face -face basis. The second needs are social. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone, I'll make a helper suitable for him. And so God creates woman. We're social beings. We don't function well in isolation. We need one another, family, friends, colleagues. The third need is for work, meaningful occupation. Genesis 2.15 says the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for it. People need an occupation. People need to work in partnership with God to meet human needs and a steward of creation. And we need to know that we're making a difference in the world. The fourth relationship is with nature. Genesis 2.9 says, Lord God made all kinds of trees growing out of the ground, 
trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Nature was a source of wonder and pleasure to humanity, as well as a source of food. And this perfect relationship with nature meant there was no illness or pain. The fifth relationship is a particularly interesting one for me as a psychiatrist. Genesis 2.25 says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Adam and Eve were perfectly comfortable in their own skin and nothing else. There was no inner anxiety or shame, nothing that needed hiding or covering up. So humanity was created to have good relationships with God, people, work, nature and themselves. But in chapter three, we read how humans rebel against God. They disobey him and damage each of these good relationships. First of all, they're separated from God. Genesis 3, 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So instead of a face-to-face -face relationship, they're trying to avoid him. And of course, we know from when we talk to people about Jesus, there are still many who want to ignore and hide from God. Secondly, they're socially separated. Genesis 3, 12 says, when God asks the man and the woman whether they've eaten the forbidden fruit, the man says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and ate it. So man is blaming woman and God for his mistakes. And we see the beginning of social conflict. And furthermore, verse 16 says, um, to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he'll rule over you. So I think here that man's desire to dominate women over the centuries is a consequence of the fall. It's not part of God's plan. And we live in a world where we see that conflict between people expressed at every level through family breakup, discrimination, violence and war. And then finally, in Genesis 3, 17 to 19, we see how both the relationships with work and nature are damaged. To Adam, he says, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree which I commanded to you, you mustn't eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It's going to produce thorns and thistles for you. You'll eat the plants of the field, but by the sweat of the brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, and to dust you are, and to dust you will return. So work is no longer creative. For many, it's an exhausting burden now as they struggle to feed their families. Some people with too much work, some with not enough. And we see that now nature produces thorns and thistles, and that pain and death enter part of human life. And finally, we see disruption of our relationship with ourselves. Because when Lord God calls to the man, where are you? The man answers, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So now humanity feels fear and shame and anxiety and an increased burden of mental illness. The choice to disobey God has caused damage that's permeated into every area of human life. Our relationships with God, with other people, with work, with nature, and with ourselves. And what I suggest is that when the these overall set, we can see how the various secular medical theories about mental illness each map onto part of the account of how the fall has sown the seeds of mental illness. So separation from nature corresponds with the biological causes of mental illness, whether it's genetic predisposition, or biochemical abnormalities or degenerative disorders such as Alzheimer's. 
We see separation from God, corresponding to the existential causes of mental illness. God gives us meaning. Without him, we can't be fulfilled. Uh, we all know that idolatry, putting faith into something that's created, not the creator, will always cause us problems because it will let us down. And I have to say, for many of us, I've been tempted at times to put medicine as our idol. And when that becomes, uh, for whatever reason, lets us down, um, that can be something that leads many uh, uh, senior doctors and junior doctors to having significant episodes of depression. Uh, separation from others maps onto the sociological causes of mental illness. We know that present loss, um, bereavement is a, often a cause of uh, depression, as is relationship conflict, but previous losses and conflicts also predispose to depression. A separation from ourselves maps onto the psychological causes of depression, leading to anxiety, shame, and inner conflict. And finally, separation from work corresponds with the behavioral causes. Instead of it being us creatively controlling our environment through work, actually our environment, including our work, begins to control us and how we feel. Thus, what I'm suggesting to you is that all these secular therapies can be understood as attempting with varying degrees of success to repair some part of the damage caused to humanity's relationships by the fall. Now, if they've got a good research basis and are used carefully, they can make a very useful contribution to treatment. But as Christians, we recognize humanity's primary need for a cure for sin, which the only treatment is a restored relationship with God through Jesus' death on the cross. So where a therapy has an underlying philosophy that undermines the gospel, then clearly we need to be very careful. Well, let's change gear a little bit and look at one of the questions that I often get asked, um, which is what's the role of sin and Satan in causing mental illness? And I usually push back immediately on this uh, and suggest it, suggest it the, the very fact the question is asked like this um, suggests a prejudice about mental health problems because you could ask this uh, just as easily about um, physical uh, healthcare difficulties. And in fact, the more we understand about both of these, uh, I think the fact that any sense that there is a firm division between uh, mental and physical uh, health problems uh, becomes more difficult to defend. But if we were looking at what this was in terms of mental health issues, I think there's four different levels at which evil might be responsible for causing disease. Well, the first one I've always already talked about um, as Christians within a biblical worldview, the sense of the fall, the separation from God, each other, nature and self. In other words, it's the fact, the generality of sin, not the specific person's sin, but there's a generality of sin and living in a fallen world and broken world uh, that contributes to us having mental health problems. I think then there is a second level. Uh, it may well be that there are specific uh, sinful behaviours that make some mental health problems more common. And then we might think about the issues around demonic attempting and attack. And then finally, uh, the issues of is there mental health problems caused by demonic possession? Well, let's look, first of all, about the problems of direct effects of ours or others sin. And if this was a live seminar with people in front of me, I'd be asking for some examples. And people would almost always come up with alcohol abuse, which, of course, causes both um, damaged relationships, vernicus and cephalopathy, uh, but can also cause hepatitis. So both causing physical and mental health problems. I usually throw in speeding because a middle class audience, uh, Christian audience, will often look at things they don't do. 
But let me tell you, speeding in your car can cause both broken legs and post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, people often talk about adultery or um, sexually transmitted uh, diseases. Um, and I think one of the things around here is often it may be sin has contributed to mental disorder, but it's not necessarily the individual sin. In fact, very often it's somebody else's. Uh, when I was running a secure unit for women with significant mental health problems, um, almost every single one of those women had been abused as a child. Um, I'm not saying that these women were totally innocent about everything, but what was clear was a major factor that was an etiological development of their mental health problems had been the abuse and trauma that they experienced as children and as young adults. So they were very much sinned against, but that had undoubtedly contributed to their mental health problems. The interesting one here, pride. Um, for those of you who know Daniel well, may remember the story. Nebuchadnezzar looks at the world, says, what a fantastic chap I am. I've built Babylon. It's just wonderful. I really am the bee's knees. That's a fairly loose, um, a loose uh, translation. Um, and basically at that time, he's struck down with a mental health problem which sounds suspicious, looks suspiciously like schizophrenia, I have to say, until he repents of his pride and then he resumes uh, his, normal, uh, his normal self. So we got the generality of sin, we've got um, specific sin, but what about the possibility of demonic temptation and attack causing mental health problems? Well, I think here we've got Job as an interesting character. Um, my friend Paykel would have really liked Job because Job shows how excess life events, Job lost his children, his wealth and his health, uh, contributed to his uh, depression. And there's no doubt when you read Job that you're dealing with someone with a very high level of depression as a result of uh, the demonic attack, uh, which caused him to lose all those things. Because let no one doubt the reality uh, that we do face an intelligent and malevolent opponent. Uh, the book of Peter says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And Ephesians 6 says, we contend not against flesh or blood, but against the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world. But I think we often also need to be careful. Um, my temptation to always eat the fourth bar of chocolate in a multi-pack is probably done more to my greed than to, uh, uh, than to demonic um, uh, temptation. But undoubtedly there are times uh, when we feel ourselves considerably under attack to, or, or tempted to do stuff that will cause us and others enormous psychological pain uh, uh, moving forward. Um, well, what about demonic possession? Well, C.S. Lewis has got a good quote here. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One's to disbelieve their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased um, by both errors. And we live, many of us, well, I have to say, in the West, we live in a society which is interesting because it combines both a scientific denial of, uh, of the supernatural with an unhealthy interest in the occult. Um, of course, many of you may well live in societies which are significant difference there where um, the reality of the supernatural is something that everyone is, is much clearer about um, and, and therefore your experience may be somewhat uh, different um, from the ones that um, I've had. Um, but what I would say is that the New Testament does seem to distinguish between natural and supernatural uh, causes uh, of um, disease. Um, Matthew 4, 24 says about Jesus, news about him spread all over Syria. 
And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. The reality is that sometimes Jesus heals and perhaps that maps onto biological disorders or those things which are down to the generality of being in a fallen world. Sometimes he heals by forgiven and perhaps that maps onto uh, when uh, a disorder has a more sinful etiology and sometimes he casts out demons. Well, just in my final slide before we look at questions, one of the reasons I developed this material was I found that Christian medical students were getting themselves into a lot of difficulties when they did psychiatry. They were very anxious about it and tended to have um, tended to start labeling things as demonic, uh, which um, uh, would clearly got them into to considerable conflict uh, with their supervising consultant. Um, so the final slide here is just what's the evidence against uh, the typical voices of, uh, of schizophrenia or indeed uh, voices in severe depression being down to being demonic. And just a few ideas here. Um, actually about a quarter of us suffer from hallucinations on the edge of sleep. That's what hypnagogic and hypnopompic mean. Um, many of you in acute medicine will see that people know that people have hallucinations in acute confusional states. So um, the person, the, the, the child with a fever gets hallucinations, well, they're needing paracetamol, well, they're fever relieved, and then those all resolve. We know that drug-induced hallucinations are, are, are common. Um, and we're also uh, clearer now about the neurodevelopmental understanding of hallucinations. We can see in the brain uh, which bits light up when someone's experiencing a hallucination. And finally, of course, there's response to treatment, unless you think that uh, 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 chlorpromazine or clozapine stuns demons, uh, it seems unlikely uh, that the typical uh, voices of, of schizophrenia or severe psychotic illness um, have a demonic etiology. Well, I've given you lots of material, lots of things to think about. I've deliberately kept it fairly swift so we have time uh, for questions. Uh, and now I'm happy to um, uh, answer any questions that Peter puts to me uh, from your good selves. Well, uh, wow, that was quite a comprehensive and rapid overview of a very complex topic. So thanks, Nick, for, for sharing that and for simplifying it so much for us. So uh, now to questions. We've got quite a few coming in, Nick, and the uh, right at the top, uh, we have someone asking, many thanks for a stimulating talk and for unashamedly taking the Bible seriously as a rounded source of truth. Although psychiatric illness is not a failure of faith, is it fair to say that a healthy faith protects us to some extent against depression in the same way that it might protect against the effects of stress as a way of making sense of adversity, difficulty and brokenness and teaching humility and realism? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. One of the things I think people often so I'm going to slightly started my answer is a bit of a tangent. People often ask about does is going to church something that's protective from a mental health uh, point of view, and indeed um, you're having a faith. And to which the answer is, I think churches, if you were to look at a point prevalence of mental health problems in churches, one would hope to see an above-average level of mental health problems. But you would hope to see churches reaching out to the broken in our society. Churches should be place places where I think we're called as Christians to reach out to those in significant need. Um, but what you should see when people go to a good church um, 
is a gradual psychological improvement um, because you should see their relationship with God being restored. Opportunities for good relationships with brothers and sisters. And for some people who go to church, the very first responsibility anyone entrusts them with is an opportunity to go on a rotor. For many of us, rotors are not such a happy, happy things because we end up with lots of them. But for some people, the opportunity to serve for the first time ever is a wonderful thing. So I think faith um, is a very positive thing. But but one of the things I've, reasons I, I wanted to kind of spell out this sense of the way God creates us with these five different sets of relationships is that even that relation, even, I say even, that the restoration of a relationship with God, important though it is, still leaves us in a fallen world where we have all those other vulnerabilities. Um, and there's no doubt in my mind uh, that, that faith is enormously um, helpful, but many of us who are Christians uh, will experience serious, serious mental health difficulties. Now, they may have been worse if we hadn't been Christians, but I think it's unhelpful to say, well, if you're a Christian, um, this is something you shouldn't experience because it adds a significant um, additional uh, level of, of guilt. Um, but certainly, you know, a good church, uh, faith in the living God is something that is, is, is going to be uh, very positive uh, in terms of psychological health. Um, as much because it puts us in that place in terms of helping us to work out what good relationship looks like. What does good work look like? You know, what does it mean to relate um, to creation uh, around us and to ourselves? So there's lots of positives there. Um, but before we meet Jesus again, either when he comes again or when we die, uh, we are all still going to struggle with a whole range of psychological issues. Thank you. We live in a, a fallen world and uh, I'm certainly looking to the resurrection for perfect mental health, I think. Nick. So you, you mentioned the importance of uh, adverse life events in in mental illness and and particularly the loss of a child and especially in the 18 to 25 age group and there's a question here about the biblical view on suicide we know this is a big killer in this age group what what's a biblical perspective on suicide that that helps christians big question that, that is a very big question um so i <laughs> It's fair to say that, that, that in the past, um, and, and it may be the case and still in some churches, but in the past, uh, people have taken an extremely um, negative view of people who've committed um, suicide. Um, and clearly, if somebody you love commits suicide, that is a hugely distressing thing to occur. And I think if you were to look at something that would be likely to precipitate your own depression, the death of a loved one through suicide has got to be one of the most um, potent things uh, that, that that can occur. Um, it's certainly my view, and I, and I I don't think there's anything in scripture that gainsays it, that when we've come to know uh, the living God through Jesus, um, then we are saved, and that is our trajectory. Uh, and even if we get really ill and in the end um, do um commit suicide, which is clearly uh, uh, a common thing in the context of significant mental health problems. Um, I don't think that that in stops our, uh, it doesn't negate in any way um, our salvation. We will still meet that person again when we get to uh, be with, uh, get to be with the Lord. 
Um, clearly, I think the important thing is that we do all we can to, um, you know, as health leaders, um, to be looking at what causes suicide. Um, many of the causes of suicide are not health related. There's a whole range of things going on in our society at the moment, uh, which are putting huge pressures on young people. Mm. Uh, and, and I think rather than putting any sense of a particular responsibility on the individual who's tried to commit suicide or has committed suicide, uh, we all have to take responsibility of how we can create cultures and, and societies uh, which um, allow people to live um, in a much more wholesome way than many of our societies uh, do at the moment. If people get to the point where they feel their only escape is suicide, that is a dreadful thing. Thank you. And that's a good lead into our next question. So the next one, just relating to churches, how, how can we as churches be better involved in reaching those in mental stress? And, and how particularly can we as health professionals encourage a healthy spirituality amongst our fellow Christians in response to mental health difficulties? I, I think that's, a, that's an excellent question. And the first thing is, is to begin to talk more about this. Um, uh, one of the experiences that I, um, I had in my own life was that um, one of my three sons had developed quite significant uh, depressive disorder. And what was really interesting was that before that happened and you know everything was wonderful and everyone was doing really well, so were everybody else's children. Once I started talking about my own, the difficulties I'd had because one of my sons had got significant depression, suddenly I found that most of my friends had got children with significant mental health problems or they had significant mental health problems. In other words, many of us, and I'll try, I don't mean to be pejorative, um, but many of us just don't see what's going on until stuff happens to us, or perhaps yeah. we're not honest about it. Um, and I think therefore talking, being open, being honest about the fact that we are experiencing pain um, uh, that is in our family or perhaps in our own lives, I think is really positive. And then being able to help people get the perspective uh, about, about um, you know, the difference that um, a, a living faith can make in that. Um, I think part of uh, our reasons uh, for, well, there's a whole range of complex reasons I've already outlined, the distortions in those relationships that make us more likely to get mental health problems. Um, but if we start talking honestly about it and then working through some of those, so how do we make for better family relationships? How do we support in a church people who've either got too much work to do? So where, where is the, the gentle but courteous challenge to the person who is quite obviously burning themselves out? Um, uh, or equally, um, where is the support to the person who's never had a job where we can help them um, uh, get that job? There's, there's lots of practical stuff. Um, I think part of it as well is that um, we do tend to, uh, it's a bit of risk, and I, I certainly look at myself in this. Sometimes when we're talking about faith, we, we, we tend to talk about something which is kind of a soft prosperity gospel. In other words, that Jesus will make everything better. Um, Jesus does think makes things better, but it's not necessarily all in this life. There's no doubt Jesus makes things a lot better, but, but we need to realize that until we meet him again, there's continued gonna be pain and difficulties. I mean, I, I was at a family funeral this morning. I was at a family funeral just a few weeks ago. Uh, and these are people who we've loved and are no longer with us. And both of them are committed Christians. I've got the wonderful consolation that they're with the Lord. Um, 
But even so, that sense of separation and somebody who you, you love and you're no longer seeing. So actually supporting one another, being honest about it, I think is one of the significant um, things that we need to do if our churches are going to be more uh, helpful to people with mental health problems. Uh, one final thing I would say is that those involved in mental health problems, but of course this will depend on which what your society and services are like, but certainly in some services, and it's this case in the UK, and um, we often have, there are often chaplains involved in mental health in mental health services, and they are members of a multidisciplinary team. They're often woefully underused, and actually um, there can be a real good resource if, if, if they're if, you know, the good chaplains in, in terms of people being able to be referred on. Uh, if they've got spiritual struggles. Thank you so much. And I think especially for emphasizing the importance of Christian health professionals ourselves being vulnerable, uh, both about our own difficulties and also about those in our families as well, I think is a great way of disarming prejudice and stigma in the churches and helping people to understand when we take the lead in that. A question here from Joanne Byfleet. Assuming we have a Christian patient, uh, what's your experience uh, in terms of the best ways to introduce a biblical perspective to a consultation uh, with a Christian suffering from a mental health problem? Um, I think that's. I think that is a good question as to where that um, is. That the job of the Christian health professional is. It, is it your job to point them to resources that can um, that can do that. As I've already said, one of the benefits, if you're in a, in a if you're within, um, and I realize that by far some of the people here in this will be laughing at this, but if you are certainly in the UK where there is access to chaplaincy, then actually working with chaplains to make sure they're able to provide that um, can be a very positive thing to do. One of the things that we did um, when we were looking, there was within the UK health service, there was a thing called um, mental health services. Um, there was a, the recovery approach, which was a sense of being less interested in getting rid of people's symptoms and more interested in them helping live the lives they wanted to live. And so that gave us, we, working with the chaplains, was to insert a couple of questions in our standard history taking. What are the things that make a difference for you? What are the important things in your life? So those were very open questions, but with everybody asking them, it actually led us into many more good conversations. Um, and then, of course, it can be a real benefit if you, um, you when's aware of what churches are providing uh, a good mental health framework uh, for the people who go to them. Um, there can be the possibility of thinking about uh, Christian um, uh, specific uh, Christian counselors where that's uh, uh, where that's uh, uh, appropriate. Thank you. I know we've got lots of psychiatrists and also psychiatrists in training listening today. And uh, one question here, I'm a psychiatry resident in Canada. Because I work in the public and secular healthcare system, I'm trained to give people answers to their mental health problems that have nothing to do with God. Do you have any words of wisdom on how to navigate my conflict about this? I'm sure that's a very common uh, yes. question. I, 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 and I, and I know that, I mean, Canada, I think, is one of the systems which is much more circular, don't have the benefits, and the NHS is pretty secular, but we still do have this uh, recognition of a spiritual component. And um, I actually, so just to go back a couple of steps, uh, the idea of recovery um, as, as a means of, of looking at mental health problems is one that is is not just in the UK. Um, and I think it's one that if, if one is more senior within uh, different mental health services across the world actually beginning to think about well what does recovery mean 
uh, within uh, for people and, and introducing uh, the spiritual aspect of that, I think can be very useful. I noticed flashing up there, um, somebody talking about doing saline solution. Um, and I think having um, the kind of prompts from saline solution, which allow you to have just gently introduce things that people can then pick up if they want to, um, I think is uh, can be quite uh, quite a helpful thing to do. So those faith flags, uh, which if people uh, are wanting to then pursue them, you can uh, you can pursue. And um, the other thing I would say though is that often people coming with significant mental health problems, um, we need to be I think quite careful in terms of their vulnerability. Um, uh, my experience is if you've got somebody with a severe depression or a psychotic uh, problem, you are going to have to treat them first um, with probably with some kind of biological treatments, with, with medication, to get them to the point where they can begin to even think about what are some of the other underlying issues. So I think yes. we need to be quite careful um, that we don't, we don't make ourselves vulnerable um, by trying to, um, by not giving people the treatment they need to move them from the point of view of the acute psychotic or severe depressive episode, where really cognitively they can't process to the point where you can then actually look at um, what, what are the important things um, that they need uh, in order to prevent um, them becoming a depressed one well again. Um, I think the legitimate concern people have about just giving antidepressants is that you can make people uh, well in the short term, but if you don't address some of the underlying issues, then they're just gonna become unwell again. But equally, if you don't use antidepressants, um, often people aren't going to get well enough for you to begin to address the issue. Yeah. There's a question from my owner here, who's a Christian psychiatrist in Austria. Uh, thanks for your talk. Do you have some book recommendations for me as a psychiatrist and Christian? I, I noticed some people have been putting book suggestions in the chat, so have a look at those. And when we write to you tomorrow, we will include uh, some publications that Nick has given us to, to pass on. But Nick, just off the cuff, uh, any uh, perhaps two or three recommendations? Yeah, the book that I found quite, quite useful. Um, Roots of Sorrow, uh, which is done by, um, you've, you had the chap speaking here not long ago, um, worked with Labrie, Richard Winter. So Roots of Sorrow by Richard Winter, I found a useful book looking at um, depression. Um, I found, um, so in terms of working with churches, uh, there's a good book, um, and one of the authors is Ingrid Witten, who's a colleague of mine. It's something like, uh, I, shouldn't, I, sh I shouldn't feel like this. It's un understanding mental health, understanding depression as a Christian. It's a really good practical workbook uh, for people and uses quite good church examples that you could work through with a, 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 a kind of Christian uh, friend who's suffering from depression or rather give out to people in in churches as a kind of first as a first line to help them uh, think about that and um, IVP have a book called modern psychotherapies um, although it's not as modern as it was uh, that's uh, useful uh, again useful in terms of analyzing um, one of the articles that I've put is really basically a summary of that it's an analysis from a Christian worldview of the pros and cons of different interventions um, psychiatric and psychological interventions, some of which I think are, are very easy to use with a Christian worldview, and some of which are mo much more challenging. Um, so, for example, I think cognitive therapy is a truth-based therapy. Um, it's helping people see the world more clearly. Um, uh, thank you very much, Richard. Uh, that's very helpful. Richard Day's just put the, the reference in for not supposed to feel like this. 
And but I think so cognitive therapy, I think is something that's very useful. And it may be a question you've already got here. I, I don't think if you if a good cognitive therapist is a really useful um uh, thing to have. And I don't think it matters too much whether they're a Christian or not. Clearly, in an ideal world, you might want a Christian one, but frankly, their skill as a cognitive therapist, because it's a truth-based therapy, is really important. There are other therapies, and um, for instance, ironically, some of the basic counselling therapies that come from Rogerian counselling, which is a much more liberal human humanist-based set of therapies, uh, which are, are much trickier from a uh, from a Christian point of view. Um, uh, Rogers talks about self-actualization, that people are all intrinsically good. And if you just release their inhibitions and let them get do the things they want to do, um, they'll make themselves even better. Now, I think most of us who are parents will realize there's a bit of a mistake in that. Um, but reality, theologically, that's almost the opposite of the gospel. The idea that people are almost unconditionally good. And if you let them do whatever they want, uh, they will improve. So um, both the article I've written, but um, I say modern psychotherapies really helps look at a whole range of different therapies and uh, what are the pros and cons. But even those which one would regard as not uh, very helpful overall, many of them contain some really useful things that we can learn. Um, and, and that I think is, uh, you know, we need to be prepared. Uh, you know, all truth is God's truth. So when stuff's based on good research, we should be prepared to reflect on it, even if underlying the, there are some elements of it that perhaps we wouldn't want to use in practice. Yeah, we gave such a, a helpful overview at the beginning of the five different areas and how they relate to different models of mental illness. And of course, those models all produce therapies consistent with those worldviews as well. You, you've told us how helpful CBT can be in good hands. You've been more wary of Rogerian counselling. Are there any particular therapies in the, you know, in the quiver, if you like, of a of a Christian psychiatrist that you would particularly recommend from a Christian worldview and any that you want uh, to caution about? Yes. So I think as, a, you know, as, you, as I've already said, um, I'm, I, I think cognitive therapy is a really useful therapy. Um, I think other therapies um, would be some of the other therapies you really would want a Christian therapist. So there are some very, and I can't get into the detail of them in the two minutes, but there's some really, I think, very important psychodynamic therapies. But if I was going for psychodynamic therapies, I really would want a Christian doing those um, because some of those um, uh, are begin to become, a, uh, they're, they're very powerful for change, but if the, they were being done with you, I think with a non-Christian, uh, they could be um, quite, uh, quite destructive. Um, I think if you look at just the use of medication, one of the downsides of medication, as I say, be a bit reductionist, um, a sense of not treating the whole person. Um, so I think, but, but medication does have a place. You know, it clearly is uh, an important component of what we do, but we see the wider human being uh, looking at all of those different areas which need to be uh, restored. And so we can see here that actually where churches can have a real role because a church that churches that provide some of those other things in terms of relationship uh, with people um, uh, can be enormously um, beneficial. And I know quite a lot of churches that, uh, that provide some relatively low level mental health type um, support type groups um, can, be, can be really helpful in terms of building links with local communities and indeed beginning to unpack with people 
um, you know, uh, the gospel. We've been focusing largely on mental health problems today, but if we look at the flip side, mental well-being, what could Christians do, our churches do, really to promote mental well-being and build resilience in their congregations? Yes, I think <laughs> if, if I got onto my next, the slides that I didn't go, I've got another 10 slides that we had a bit <laughs> longer where we could begin to have explored some of that. I think as we've, we found over COVID, more and more people are aware of the role of anxiety and stress. And actually, I think all of us need to have a better understanding of our own, um, what makes us stressed and anxious and how we can effectively manage that. Now, I think as Christians, there are some real contributions um, through a better understanding of ourselves, through scripture, uh, through prayer and uh, through worship, uh, through the support of brother to brother and sister to sister. Um, these are really, really useful things. But I think um, some of this stuff is actually about um, things we can do to manage ourselves, which are part of restoring those other elements of relationships. So when I talked about the relationship between human beings and nature. For many people, building in that time to walk and pray whilst walking in countryside can be really important. Just good quality relational time with other people that's building relationships can be very important. So I think that kind of proactive thinking through and supporting one another uh, to have a realistic view of who we are and what we can achieve. Um, uh, and um, what I, you know, as a final thing, I would say to anyone, have an accountability relationship, um, preferably in a prayer triplet, but it's certainly with one other person, somebody who you know, who love, who loves you, um, uh, who loves Jesus, and who you can pray with on a regular basis, but who you've given active permission that if things are looking difficult for you, they can ask you some of those difficult questions, or they can help steer you uh, in positive directions. By and large, we don't take enough responsibility for one another. And I think when you look at the New Testament, there's a real encouragement that we should look after our brothers and sisters. Uh, we need to provide a structure which allows us uh, to do that. Thank you. Uh, those particularly working in mental health will have colleagues who have perhaps very strong uh, secular or atheistic worldviews, maybe strongly anti-Christian views as well. The question here from Harry Zhu, who's a psychiatry resident in Canada. I've witnessed patients with spiritual practices, i.e. praying, reading the Bible, quite normal things for Christians, being labelled as psychotic by secular healthcare professionals. At the same time, there's an increased recognition of cultural sensitivity for healthcare professionals. As Christian psychiatrists, do we have a responsibility be, to be champions for cultural psychiatry? And, and how can we help our colleagues be a little less unbalanced in their yeah. approach? I think that's a really good, it's a really good question. Uh, one of the things that, that amused me when I started doing this seminar um, with Christian medical students um, from around the country was there were one or two medical schools with really aggressive lecturers. Uh, and they would just, they would use Christianity as an example of a delusion. And uh, once I'd identified who those were, um, okay, occasions I could prepare the next generation of students who would have them to, to counter challenge that. Because uh, of course, the, the definition of, of delusion is that it's a false, unshakable belief, uh, firmly held, but out of keeping with someone's social cultural beliefs. Well, um, yes. you know, the Christian faith is held by a good 2 billion citizens on this planet. Yes. And um, therefore, 
actually, for anyone to suggest that is really poor psychiatry because it clearly it is out with any sense of being able to define it as being deluded. So I think uh, more seriously, um, actually helping people realize the cultural context is, is indeed uh, an important one. Um, we haven't got probably time to explore it because we're now at, 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 at uh, three o'clock. Um, but one of the things I talk to people um, is that, for instance, a lot of Muslims believe that um, mental illness is caused by jinn. That's with a J and not a G, although yeah. the jinn, G-I-N can, can cause mental illness as well if drunk to excess. Um, but if you say, so I say to people, if you say, if the first contact, I'm talking just was training senior registrar, I say, if the first contact with that Muslim family who've somewhat reluctantly brought their person to see you is for you to poo-poo their views, then they're going to completely lose any sense of, of, of accessing services at all. If, however, you respect their beliefs, but say, yes, um, I understand that may be one of the things that you're worried about, but in this particular case, because of X, Y, and Z, I think this is a typical course, a, a, typical, um, uh, you know, a typical element of depression, um, then you're much more likely to be hurt. So I think um, a, a, a cultural sensitivity is a crucial thing to be a, a, a psychiatrist in many of our societies, which are now multicultural. Thank you. And, and sadly, we are, uh, we've almost run out of time already. There's a whole host of other questions we've not got to, and lots of very positive comments in the chat as well. Nick, just before we go, I wanted just to ask you one more question uh, from uh, personally from your own background. Is there a need for more Christians in psychiatry? And related to that, what, what helped you most as a Christian uh, training in psychiatry in, in a largely atheistic worldview background? So, I, so the answer clearly is yes. Um, we, we need to have psychiatrists. Uh, clearly we need Christian doctors of all kinds. Uh, uh, Christian GPs are really crucial. Um, uh, but um, I think it's really valuable clearly, to have more Christians in psychiatry. I think for me, it was really helpful having a, a Christian prayer partner who was a psychiatrist. So the two of us wrestled with this together and were able to support one another when things were difficult. And that's why I'm, I'm always very positive about having a prayer accountability relationship. So I think if you ask that now that most of us have discovered we don't physically have to be in the same room, or even the same country as somebody to have that, um, uh, actually um, perhaps pairing people up so that they can they can wrestle with these issues together would be really helpful. Uh, certainly within um, the UK, uh, CMF has got a Christian psychiatry um, uh, section. And so if you're in the UK, uh, you can join that. Um, uh, and that would give you a, a, uh, some practical support. But I would say perhaps it's something that we can, we could, you know, perhaps look at is how we, if people are really isolated, can is there ways of pairing them up for prayer and discussion uh, with folk at a distance. But that was the most helpful thing to have a Christian colleague to pray with. Nick, thank you so much. We, you've packed so much into this hour and it's been so refreshing and so encouraging to, to all of us and just seeing all, all the comments coming through in chat. So uh, you're, you're a great encouragement, people say, and we must have you back again. So that, that's perhaps a discussion for you and I to, to have later. So uh, thank you everybody for joining us today on ICMBA webinars, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. God bless you.